Face to Face Games proudly presents Grand Prix Toronto, the first Grand Prix featuring the Hour of Devastation limited format, July 21st to 23rd. Come face pro players as they flex their muscles just one week before the Pro Tour. Every Grand Prix entry includes a sleep-in special and registered sealed pool for players with buys. Visit gptoronto2017.facetofacegames.com to register and learn more. Welcome to episode 31 of First Strike. I'm your host, Doug Potter, as usual. No, I'm just kidding. KYT couldn't be here today, so uh, we decided to dig back into the old dredges of First Strike's past and bring me back to host another episode. And I'm excited to be spending it with every single other co-host uh, that we've had from the very beginning. How are you doing today, Rob Lombardi? Life's good. Yeah, Carr wanted us all here to make sure that Doug didn't do anything too stupid. I mean, if, as if they could stop me, am I right? Uh, we got my good friend Brian. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm glad you're here, Doug, but I'm pretty upset. I cannot believe how late Carr is. This is a new standard of lateness. How can you even be this late? He's so late that he's not going to make it to one second of this podcast. And I, I think the first check listeners are sick of his unprofessionalism. There's going to be some serious talks in these coming weeks about uh, whether Carr can continue on with this project. And, uh, you know, maybe it's time for more Doug. We'll see. True. I mean, there's a chant that got started in my work saying, put Doug up. So here we go. Put me up for the podcast. Uh, no, I mean, he's actually so late that we were on time for the first time. How about that one? But that's because of our uh, house technician tonight and uh, general MTGO streaming bad, uh, uh, bad person. Bad boy. How you doing, Vince? That was a great intro, man. I appreciate that. I almost swore. I forgot that I can't swear on this swear on this podcast. I think but... it's happened a few times. Uh, he's not here. I'm, I'm sure he this is yeah. This is going to be fun. This is exciting. Let's see if, <laughs> if we can if we can manage this without Papa KYT. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, it should be a good episode. And I just want to, before we start, give a huge shout out to our friends at face2facegames.com for making this podcast and many other amazing ventures possible. I'm super pumped to be working alongside Face to Face and want to give one huge shout out to the First Strike Nation. I've really missed interacting with a lot of you. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we have an amazing community that you can get involved with if you, uh, if you donate to our Patreon, but we're going to talk about that maybe a little bit at the end. For now, we're going to talk into some Magic the Gathering content that we're going to start off discussing Grand Prix Las Vegas. And there, there were three huge events this weekend, a legacy, a sealed, and a modern. But we know a lot of people want to hear uh, a bit about the modern uh, Grand Prix in specific. But for any general thoughts as well as modern-specific thoughts, I'm going to open it up to Rob first. Uh, take me through Grand Prix Las Vegas and your thoughts on it. Yeah, this top eight's like pretty untraditional, <laughs> I guess, as far as modern top eight. Let's go. So it, it, it's kind of interesting. I didn't get a lot to watch a lot of it, so I don't really understand why the shape of the top eight looks the way it does, but you know, we can go through it nonetheless. So the white hate bears deck that made it, which is just like a death and taxes type type list, a bunch of affinity lists, which are standard for, you know, a modern Grand Prix Eldrazi Tron, which I'm sure no one's ex- surprised to see. 
that doing well in a, a random Naya burn list, and then green white hate bears and blue black taking turns rounding out <laughs> the top eight with affinity taking it down. Uh, it's kind of crazy, right? Like I I, I don't know. <laughs> like, do you guys think this is normal? Is this the new modern we live in? No death shadow. Uh, Grixis or Jund anywhere to be found in the top eight. Yeah, I'm I'm having a hard time figuring out this this top eight um, because I think if you listen to the buzz around this tournament and you know you followed what the quote unquote pros were playing, it was all about Grixis Death Shadow. Everyone was all in on Grixis Death Shadow. People are starting to talk about is Grixis Death Shadow too good? Um, it's not here. There, there's no there, there's no Grixis Death Shadow list in this top eight. I think there's a ton in the tournament, but there's none in the top eight. And then what's interesting about that to me, though, is that I looked through what did make the top eight, and with maybe the exception of like the green white hate bears hate bears deck, I don't think these decks are great against Death Shadow. I, I've actually played a bunch of Death Shadow. I really enjoy the deck, and I've been enjoying some modern lately. Um, I think my affinity matchup is fine. I think my Eldrazi Tron matchup is actually surprisingly good. I mean, it's kind of the deck you would expect to really beat up on Death Shadow. Um, but if you plan for it properly in the sideboard, I, I think it's totally manageable. Um, the burn matchup is great. You usually have three to four collective brutalities post-board. Um, so, and Green-White Hate Bears, you know, gets a few points by being a little bit bigger than what the Grixis deck can deal with. And it may be the same for the mono-white Hate Bears list. I honestly don't have a lot of familiarity with it. But I'm surprised that these are the decks that kind of shut Grixis Death Shadow out of the format. If anyone has insight on that, I'd be happy to hear it because, you know, maybe we have some... This is the way modern goes, though, right? Like, the people who are affinity guys will always tell you, oh, my affinity deck beats this matchup. And we kind of feel the opposite on the other side, you know? So I I don't know. Maybe, Maybe modern's becoming a format about... Play skill? Is that actually happening? Is, am I really saying these words right now? That's something I never thought I would say. I don't. I don't know if that's the case. I think. Um, yeah, I'm not sure either. Teamer Battle Rage being absent from most of the Death Shadow Zoo or Death Shadow decks uh, in recent memory is probably uh, a reason why all of these like random creature based uh, weenie decks are putting up better results. Like. Against Affinity, when I was playing Death Shadow Zoo, when it was actually broken, um, it was pretty easy to kill them because none of their creatures are are large, and you just like become immense battle rage them for eighteen uh, at kind of like almost any point in the game, um, and, and it's over. But you don't really have the ability to do that now. So like you can block with an Arc Round Ravager or an Ornithopter, and that's probably enough time to get in with uh, an Inkmoth Nexus or an Edge Champion uh, two or three times and kind of close out the game. Maybe that's why the Hate Bears lists. We're kind of, you know, doing reasonably well too. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. So I mean, because all these decks can be good against Jund, right? And that's kind of where the Death Shadow deck is right now. So maybe that's what we're seeing. Maybe it's time to go back to the more combo oriented and less Jundy version of of Death Shadow. If everyone's going to be bringing kind of Aether Vile or Mox Opal decks, I don't know. Hey, Doug, you got any opinions on Modern? You've been, you've been watching it. I mean, I watched the the modern coverage for Vegas, and the narrative for all of day two, with the exception of when it got into the top eight, was Grixis Death Shadow. Like, it's everywhere. All the good players are playing it. This is clearly like the oppressive deck in the format. But it just happened that like a bunch of them were X one, X two going into the last year rounds, and then all of them lost. So I don't know if it's necessarily like the deck is awful and 
it's not in the top eight, therefore it's bad. Because we've preached on this podcast before, don't look at the top eight results as the only results <laughs> for a tournament. So let's oh, this not, makes sense. This let's makes not sense. fall victim to our own uh, our own our own uh, guidance there. But uh, this was a great top eight. Like it was really fun to watch. It was very entertaining. Shoutouts to Manny Davuti for taking it down. Um, just from a viewer perspective, it was incredibly fun to watch him in the finals. I think he killed his opponent on turn two. Like his opponent just scooped on turn two in game one. And then game two, he mulliganed to four and won. Like it was just insane. It was super fun to watch. Uh, he's a great guy. He's helped me out a lot in my when I was streaming early on. So he's, he's good stuff. And I'm glad to see him take it down with Affinity. But yeah, I, I don't think this top eight is like, wow, Grixis Death Shadow's out of the picture now because there was a lot of people playing it. And when it was on camera, like there was a lot of times where I'm like, yeah, this deck is incredible. The fact that you can just play one mana 5-5 five, five and protect it with a bunch of cheap spells that also happen to kill your opponent is very real. So I yeah, would uh, that It was an interesting narrative point, as you mentioned, that the story of the weekend was Grixis Death Shadows. And actually there was a little discussion between Marshall and LSV right after the finals wrapped. And uh, Marshall asked LSV like his opinions on the weekend and the format. And uh, Luis said something to the effect of during his and Gabby's time on coverage, every single round that they covered together had a Grixis Death Shadows player in the feature match. It wasn't the same for Huey and Marshall and clearly wasn't the same come the top eight. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't see every round to know if that was ac- accurate or not, but that was definitely the, the feeling uh, Luis had and definitely seemed to be the story from all the rounds that I did watch. So is the deck good? Is the deck fair and beatable is this a product of a 3500 person main event where you can honestly if you're a good player like brian mentioned and you you know have some favorable pairings you can outplay people all the way to the top eight like the white weenie player did i guess it's not white weenie it's hate bears but you know i don't know i've always been a modern aficionado and it's all but two of my pro tour qualifications have come through modern or extended so uh i'm happy to see diversity is i guess what i'll call it a bunch of different decks taking turns was really fun um, it had more sleeves on it than games of magic I've played in the past three months. So that was definitely kind of cool to see. Uh, uh, I mean, I think I've played three games of magic, so quad sleeves definitely had me beaten. So that was definitely cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyone can, can someone explain quad sleeves to me, please? Is there any actual evidence that putting just slamming your cards in as many sleeves as humanly possible does anything to protect the cards, preserve their value? Like, I know it's like you would expect just putting them in a bunch of sleeves makes them safer. I don't know if this is a family friendly reference, but you shouldn't wear two condoms, right? And you, so maybe you shouldn't put your cards in four sleeves. I'm just saying it's, it's a possibility. We don't have any definitive evidence that this is actually protecting these cards. And it's really annoying when someone hands me, you know, a huge brick of their deck and I have to wedge it together and try and find some way to shuffle. People who have seen me play magic will already tell you I look super awkward when shuffling cards anyway. So it's only worse when you hand me this awkward four sleeve monstrosity. Um, stop doing this people. And until I see definitive evidence that this is protecting your cards, I find it unacceptable. There shouldn't be four sleeves on your deck. Maybe Before- he has like a, a, like a perfect fit EDH box and he wanted it to be like the same thickness as a hundred card deck so that it would like fit snugly. And not move around a lot. You know? It's the best explanation I've heard so far. <laughs> you know, my, my personal opinion, before we derail this too further on the day that I host <laughs> down some rabbit trails I don't want to go, uh, is I think it's the Magic the Gathering equivalent of peacocking. You know, you're the guy that you want just people to look at you, oh, look at my foil deck. Oh, why is that deck so thick? Is it Battle of Wits? No. Is it EDH deck? No, it's just four sleeves. I don't know. To me, it's, it's attention more than protection, but... 
Also, uh, apparently, it'll just like tilt random people like Brian, and you'll just exactly. get three wins because they'll be like, "I can't shuffle this," and just give up. So well, it's, so all upside. <laughs> it's so rare that I'm mentally focused. I promise you, if I face four sleeves taking turns, I'm turning on my A game. Like I will do everything possible to beat this person and end their tournament on the spot. Because I'll be so angry. I'm one of those people who are motivated by rage, not like. <laughs> Not deep focus. I just need to be angry enough about something, and then I'll step up to the plate and play my best. So. It could have just been a Las Vegas exclusive. You know, Las Vegas is the land of excess, so uh, excess sleeves, you know, excess turns. It just all makes sense to me. But uh, I guess he, so. he did have some exciting matches. His match for top eight, uh, there was a moment where he had exactly 15 cards in his deck, drawing five cards a turn, and only had a Snapcaster for pressure. So... It was kind of like this scary moment of he might actually deck himself. And, and I think the deck is cool regardless of how many sleeves it may or may not have had on it. Maybe it helps him not draw two at once so he can always get his temporal mastery triggers because if you accidentally peel two and you just, it's too late, I don't know. He's got to have a reason. Who knows? All right. Any final thoughts on Vegas before we move on? I think, uh, I think that Grix's Death Shadow is still good. Um, but I think that their sideboard plans are probably going to change to. Uh, what this this new meta is going to look like. That, that That's where I think the format's going. Yeah, Grixis Death Shadow is the best deck in the format. It's still, and it's it's not super close. It's doing the most broken things. Um, but I think Rob is right. Sideboard plans have to evolve. And that's a lot of what modern is all about, is keeping your sideboard plans fresh and uh, always having a plan for each matchup and, and, you know, kind of keeping an eye on trends that are happening. It's, it's not such detailed metagaming, but it's just about trends and understanding how you can adapt sideboard plans to those trends. So I like, you know, we talked a little bit about Team or Battle Rage. I like that avenue is something to explore. You're right that it seems like it adds a bunch of points against Affinity and these kind of creature-based decks. So, yeah, if you have Death Shadow, stick with it. Think about your sideboard, and I think you'll end up in a fine place for Modern. Uh, just on a more general level, the GP was covered really well. Like CFP did a really good job this weekend. Uh, view counts were insane, like over 20,000 viewers on an official magic GP. Like that's usually doesn't happen. So that was good to see. Um, and shout outs to all of the casters who ran that because that must've been a marathon, like five days, even though they had, I think four people, it was still really well done and entertaining to watch as a viewer, which for me is rare to have for a Magic GP to actually want to watch. So, yeah, well done, CFP. Good job. Good job, Watsi. Good job, CFP. <laughs> yeah, I know they had at least five because Patrick Chapin was starting off the weekend. I think Cheon might have been as well. So they definitely uh, did some smart choices. And I, I appreciate all the modern advice. I'm actually playing a face-to-face 3K this weekend. Uh, I'm pretty excited. I'm going to play Hate Bears because I just don't like having fun, and I don't want my opponents to either. So um, enough about modern, though. We're actually going to move on to what is normally a stale topic, but right now seems like a pretty interesting topic to me, and that's the new standard, I guess we'll call it. Uh, this is standard post-bannings. Um, what are you? What are you guys thinking, Brian? Why don't you uh, start us off? You have any thoughts on standard, where we're at right now, and where to start? Yeah. So here's how you know this standard is awesome. I've been playing it a lot, but just not for any reason. I have no tournaments coming up. I just sit down and play standard, and I'm enjoying the games of standard, and I find them all really interesting. I I love the mono black zombies deck. I think it's just like one of the coolest decks I've played in such a long time. It has so many decision points. It's not at all what it appears to be on its surface. It's an incredibly thought-intensive deck to play. It has great sideboard plans. I don't know if it's the best deck, 
Uh, it's a deck I really enjoy playing, though, and that's kind of what's more important to me right now after feeling... It's been a while since I felt that way, so I'm enjoying myself with the Zombies deck, and I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on under the surface. We're in the First Strike Nation Facebook group, and we were talking a little bit about this Black, White, Anointed Procession deck that's popping up a little bit. The deck's so cool. It does all the things I like in Magic, just tiny little bits of value all over the place, grinding games out, and it's a deck... The, the coolest thing about it is this deck that could have never existed under the previous constraints of the format for the past, you know, six months. There's no no conceivable way a deck like that could ever compete against Cat Combo or Aetherworks Marvel. It would just be shut out of all those games. Um, and, and even going back to when Emrakul is the format, there's no way that kind of strategy could compete with Emrakul. So it's just nice to have a new form of magic available uh, after being kind of pigeonholed into this battle cruiser style of magic for so long. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it. I, I think that there's a lot of evolution still to be done with the format. There's still a lot of interesting, unexplored spaces, and it's only going to get better when we get to Hour of Devastation. And someone kind of said to me, maybe I was getting excited too early, you know, maybe this will just be as stale as the other formats and just needs a few weeks to shake out. But for me, it's more about the style of magic being played. We're just playing different types of games of magic anymore. There's not just those endgame moments where you reach a point of inevitability and that got me thinking about how much inevitability in magic has changed over the past few years because inevitability used to be things like sphinx's revelation where sure it seemed like you had complete control of the game but if you your opponent played absolutely perfectly sometimes you could just engineer that one turn window i i think a lot about the mono black versus sphinx's revelation decks and you know your, your opponent would rev for eight but if you were an excellent mono-black player and thought really carefully many turns in advance, you could often engineer a spot where you still had a chance to seal that game back. So it was inevitable in one sense, but in another sense, it didn't completely cl- close the door. And inevitability, really since the Eldrazi showed up, has felt completely different in Magic. Um, you're just kind of closed out of so many options because you, you can't beat Eldrazi in a long game. Um, they're mostly gone now. I know Ulamog's still there, but he's just not quite good enough to play on his own. At least I don't think so. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really enjoying the end game of magic, uh, and I'm enjoying magic a lot in general right now. So good for you, wizards way to make a tough, but correct decision. Awesome. Uh, Vince, have you been playing a new standard or thinking about it at all? I'm more of a thinker than a player, Doug. So I'll give my, my opinion based on pure conjecture. Um, it seems like there's this sort of complete 180 that's happened, right? And Brian was kind of alluding to this as well. I feel like players are a lot more in control of their own destiny now. It feels like you can decide what you want to play. You can decide to get better or worse at whatever you're playing, and you feel a little bit more responsible for your victories and losses. And I think that's really important right now. Whether or not it's better or worse for Magic is, I think, another topic of conversation. But it's it's very refreshing right now for people who play Standard, because I think for a long time there was this feeling that Standard was very coin flippy and standard was very draw dependent and standard was very luck based. And like Brian was talking about with zombies, that's a deck that if you play it well and you understand what's going on multiple turns ahead, and if you're thinking about your game, you're going to get rewarded. And sometimes that was not the case in previous standards. So it's nice to see that we're kind of entering an era where people can pick a deck, get good at it, and feel like they're actually getting some kind of benefit from that time. And I'm all about that. So yeah, standards looking good right now. Modern's looking good right now. 
Wizards has done some good stuff. I just wish they did it a little bit earlier in terms of the bannings. But yeah, I, I absolutely wish they did it earlier. <laughs> would have made Montreal much more uh, interesting, probably for uh, everyone who was there, except for the people that top aided. Um, but yeah, I, I think the metagame looks pretty sick. This is kind of like the metagame we've always hoped for, right? Like, oh, we've always been talking about if they just get rid of this garbage, what's the metagame going to look like? And it kind of looks exactly like what we'd expect, right? The the teamer deck is still a deck, right? Like Glorybringer and Ramp and the energy cards are still good together. Uh, Winding Constrictor and Walking Ballista are still also insane. You can go Delirium or Energy. So both of those decks don't change too much. Both, I think both of the Zombies variants are, are fine, both Mono Black and, and Black White. And then you have kind of like Mardu uh, also being still in the mix, right? Obviously, the deck's still very good. If I look at just that metagame right now, I think I would lean towards Mardu. I think that you can construct a Mardu sideboard plan that uh, allows you to go into the control variant to beat on the energy, uh, like the green, black, and teamer decks. And you can play um, some cheap removal and like Dust of Dawn or whatever to, to get around uh, a zombie's opponent that's not too well-versed in what you're trying to do. Um, so I think that's where I go, but I, I mean, I'm kind of have a special place in my heart for Mardu maybe. So it's more of my hoping that it's good than maybe it's actually good. Um, but if I, if I had an event that I needed to test for, I think it, looking at all these decks, they're kind of like mid range to aggro based creature decks with like maybe, maybe blue red control rounding out the meta. Um, and I feel like there's a space for like a traditional red green ramp. Uh, Eldrazi deck that's currently not represented in the metagame because if you were going to play an Ulamog deck before, you would just play Marvel. There's no point in doing anything else. But I feel like, you know, Chandra 6, Worldbreaker, and Ulamog with Kozilek's Return could uh, could make a comeback in Standard and be uh, be something interesting. You have Hedron Archive and Chandra 4 uh, to help ramp you, so I don't know. I feel like that deck has the tools to to be annoying, given how the metagame is currently uh, represented anyway, so if I was brewing, that uh, might be a place I start. Unfortunately, there are no GPs left in this format. <laughs> yeah, that seems like the tough, uh, the tough timing that they've kind of constructed for themselves by finally banning the cards that needed to get banned. I, I mean, I'm currently someone who still looks in, into a lot of magic, and I love looking at competitive standard league results, and the, the cool thing for me is the most recent one that posted two days ago uh, 10 decks went 5-0. There are five different archetypes, vastly different archetypes. And I think that's pretty cool. One of those players was Misplaced Ginger. I want to give a shout-out for Strike Nation. Uh, Friends, great Golgari Constrictor 5-0 there. But there's a white mini deck with uh, four bygone bishops and four white monuments. Like, I'm not saying this is a real deck. I'm not even saying that uh, this could be the place to to go. But it's kind of cool looking up lists like this that just could not have existed in the previous standard. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for uh, Hour of Devastation to drop, as Brian alluded to, and for this format to hopefully turn into something similar where there's some competitive decks doing different, very different things, like the Constrictor deck, the Zombies deck, and Teamer Energy. They're not really doing the same thing uh, as each other. And, and I think that diversity, as well as the grindiness that was alluded to, could be fun. Um, well, that I guess before we move off standard, if you just had to recommend one deck today to someone who's going to maybe a PPTQ, uh, just based on your experience, what deck would you recommend? If you weren't playing Marvel, 
play whatever deck you were playing. Because <laughs> uh, I feel like deck familiarity is is very important uh, right now. And, and just tune your sideboard a little bit to know that, you know, Marvel doesn't exist and control is not really part of the meta game in a strong way uh, right now. I mean, if your local meta is different, then obviously take that into account. But in, on, the, on the global stage, it doesn't seem to be like that. So if you're a mono black player, I, I would stick to mono black. If you're playing Mardu, I'd stick to Mardu. Um, and if you were a Marvel player, I'd probably just build uh, Teamer Energy. I think that there's no point in shifting too much, uh, especially like given the added cost for picking up everything. I think that you can do just fine by knowing your deck and knowing your matchups better than your opponents. All the decks seem good, which is very weird. Zombies. <laughs> just play zombies. Zombies are great. They're fun. They have plans for every matchup. Um, I get, I get what Rob is saying. I think the context of the format has changed enough where you can't rely a lot on your old information. Just it's such different games of Magic being played right now. Um, so, so maybe I'll give a two tiered answer. If you have a ton of time to practice, I would say Zombies. I, th- I do think it's a difficult deck to play well. Um, I find myself making mistakes all the time, and and the power level will bail you out in some cases, and in other cases, you'll see where. You know, one Crypt Breaker activation as opposed to an attack would have won you the game uh, and you passed on it, or vice versa. Um, so you have a ton of time to practice, play Zombies. If you didn't have a ton of time to practice, I think the Rug deck, the Rug Energy deck is probably, in terms of raw power, uh, the most powerful thing you can do in the format right now. Uh, it feels like Glorybringer kind of outclasses Gideon a little bit, so I think Mardu maybe held that banner before, and I'd, I'd give it to, to Rug now instead. That would be the, I have no practice. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'll pick up this deck and help, help, hope it carries me through to victory. I would still say if you have no practice, play Mardu, just because the God Draw Mardu is still, <laughs> still really good. Um, but yeah, if you want to have fun, play Zombies. Zombies is very cool. It, it, it plays, it, it's just so flexible the way it plays, and you'll feel like a master when you win with it. So, Zombies, if you want to have fun, if you want to try to win with no experience, play Mardu. Awesome. Yeah, this standard looks incredibly fun. I recently sold every uh, card I had on Magic Online, and I've been in the process of cashing my ticks out uh, to real money. But I've been a little tempted with my my last chunk of ticks of actually buying into a standard deck. Uh, I don't know. It, it seems like a good place to be. So to be determined, maybe uh, coming to an MTGO near you, Nutlow, that's my name for those of you who don't know. It kind of describes my play skill. Uh, as well as my general of course, vibe it's in of course it is i mean the nut low is good it can never win the whole pot but it's good for half the pot right i feel like <laughs> i've played you on moto before doug and i didn't, Most likely. I didn't know it was you yeah all right cool well we're going to move on to a topic that uh don't think we're going to spend too much time on in fact probably would have considered skipping except it's the name of our uh show right now uh for those of you do- who don't know there was a reddit post recently about what seems to be a scandal of the Magic Online variety. Yeah, it's a draft scam. So I'm going to summarize quickly what the poster said. Basically, their claim is there are groups of players, factions of players, eight or nine, that get together late at night when everyone else is sleeping, and one of them will hop in the draft queue and wait until the the queue fills up to about seven or eight people. Right before it fires, they'll maybe drop out. And then the second a new queue starts for the draft league, all eight players that are part of this faction will quickly jump into the queue together, guaranteeing that they get a full pod to themselves. They'll then communicate via Discord or some other uh, form of uh, ventrilo chat, 
and they'll talk about their picks and they'll basically just organize amongst themselves to draft incredibly strong decks that then go into the league and face random opponents. They don't need to play it right afterwards. They can wait till the next day. Now, this topic is not something that is necessarily even a real uh, thing. We don't know if this is real or just a troll, but uh, we decided to just quickly touch on this. If, if this is something that should be fixed by Wizards, maybe if there's a simple solution we could offer, or if we think this is stupid and want to share that opinion, I'm going to go to our resident Magic Online draft specialist, Vince, uh, for our first strike on this topic. Uh. Yeah, this this is pretty stupid. I mean, it's hilarious. The concept is actually really funny. Like, I love the idea that someone came up with this and thought it was like the next, like they're cheating the system by doing this for a relatively small edge. Like, it's it's kind of hilarious, especially when you look at the EV of drafting on Moto. Like, adding a win over maybe three drafts per three drafts, like adding one win is so marginal that it's just hilarious the amount of coordination required to justify it. Um, do I think Wizards needs to do anything about it? No, but it's probably a really easy fix if they wanted to, right? Like someone suggested they could hide the number of, of users in a queue so you can't game it or have it go up to like 16 to 24 people and then randomly put groups of eight into draft pods so you can't do this. So the fix is easy, um, but the problem is so marginal that if if there's a list of things that need to be fixed on Moto, this is like... I'll take this right at the end over actually everything else. So it's not a big deal. It's actually just really funny that someone thought of this. So I, I agree that uh, it's unlikely that there is a cabal of people getting together late at night <laughs> and orchestrating these uh, eight man drafts. But I mean, I think uh, actually like the EV on average is probably pretty reasonable per player because like you're coming out of the draft pretty much guaranteed that you're close to the best deck you could have in your seat you might actually even be able to have a better uh deck than you would otherwise have so you have like best deck in your seat plus maybe uh depending on how the the packs are opened and how well you can communicate with the rest of your friends so the the problem i don't think is with this random assortment of eight people getting together and rigging an entire queue to have a slight edge since they still need to draw well and play well uh, to win. But it actually might be a problem anyways for just two or three people jumping in the same queue and coordinating uh, their picks, right? Like, so, for example, if the four of us just wanted to draft right now, in the old system where you had just an eight-man queue, it's like negative EV for you and your friends to get in a draft pod and draft, right? Because, like, the... You, you, you know, you're just throwing away money collectively uh, that way since all of you can't win. Uh, but in a league system, it's actually beneficial if you're a cheater to get in a draft league uh, with your friends uh, and coordinate. So I think, uh, I, I don't know if people are doing it, but I could see it being even just slightly plus EV for two people to, to join drafts together um, in a league uh, at a pretty regular rate. Um, just so that they can share information about the table to help them uh, better understand where they should be um, for for their seat, right? Um, and I think Wizards should actually look into seeing if this happens. I'd be very interested to know if it's a problem or not, since it's actually like just very common uh, for someone to do. And 
people have tried to game the Moto system before. Some people have been successful. Some people haven't. So they should probably just run a quick, uh, you know, database test to make sure that like people aren't always drafting in like tuples or, or triples or whatever a bunch to see to see if that's like you know very common. Like you can easily find out if uh, me and Vince are always in the same league draft or, or whatever, right? So I don't know. I, they should at least check. I think it would be an interesting experiment regardless at least if they find that there's nothing there they can <laughs> they can give some credibility to uh to the league system i don't know brian go ahead tilt tilt off i know you have some this heat. is the dumb the dumbest thing i've ever heard <laughs> honestly like if you are stupid enough to think this is a good idea come at me cabals i'll play you for hundreds if you want we could go all night well you guys do your eight man cabal you hop in do your draft decks i'll just get in a normal queue and I'll play you guys for hundreds all nights because you're idiots. Honestly, if you think this is a good use of your time, go for it, man. It's, it's just such a stupid thing to do. There's so little value in it. Like, you're ruining your play experience. You're not actually playing a proper draft of Magic. So there's that. And you're also not making any money. So where's the plus side? There's no rankings for Magic drafters. You're not proving your worth as a Magic drafter. You're not deceiving us all by getting your limited rating really high. Nobody cares. So I don't know what the purpose of this is. Honestly, this, is, this feels like a nonsense topic. I think this guy just wanted attention. We're giving it to him, which kind of sucks. Uh, this just exists. So, you know, crappy YouTube streamers can make clickbaity titles. Oh, wait. What's the title of our no, show tonight? No, no. That's, uh, that's inaccurate. Like, people used to, like, uh, I don't know if it's still popular, but it was very popular, like, a year or two ago, where, like, people were known for if they were playing someone that was a streamer, they would just ghost them. Like, that was a real problem, right? So it doesn't put, put it past me that people will do this. And I agree that if you're, like, very good at limited, that this is not affecting you very much. But for the people that are, like, bad at limited to mediocre at limited, it is going to affect them if someone else that's mediocre at limited has a deck that's slightly more lit than it should be, right? That assumes this is even happening, though. We have, we have no evidence of this actually happening. It's just some guy who made a Reddit post. Like, and right, but it's like a, a very easy crime to commit. So it I is, think it is, it is. That's fair. It is a very easy thing to do, but you have to, you have to find seven other people pathetic enough to care to do this with you. And I have a hard time envisioning those seven other people. No, no, you just need like right. a Rob, friend or two friends, right? Rob it's is describing like, a very real thing that could happen, two or three people jumping in a queue. And I'm, I'm just going to say full disclosure, uh, when the first Modern Masters came out, like this was a long time ago, there was like a 980-person pizza queue uh, that was the Modern Masters format. And I was at my one of my best friend's house, and we both played in the pizza queue, and we both top eight at the pizza queue at his house. It was just random. We both went 9-1. It was kind of absurd. And so we're both sitting there with our laptops next to each other in the top eight of this pizza queue, and we were like, well, this is awkward. We literally have an opportunity. You know, we both can just get better decks in our seats. It turns out we're on opposite ends of the table. We both got knocked out in the quarters. But... Um, my point is that it's a very real, I love the laughs in the background. Uh, uh, it turns out that thundercloud shaman guy wasn't as good as I thought he was. I had like three of them, but lost easily. Um, but my point is like, it's so easy when you're with friends to just be able to influence a draft in a way that, as Rob said, would be negative EV if, uh, if you were just playing within the pod. But when you don't have to play within the pod, I'm not a big fan of leagues. I don't like competitive leagues. I don't like these uh, intermediate or whatever they're called these days. Um, I, I was a big advocate, if you remember, on early episodes for them, but uh, I feel like I've been proven 
wrong by just the way time has gone on. And the decks never feel the same as when I draft in real life. They just feel like people are less inclined to hate draft and they're just doing whatever to get the best deck possible. So I think there that, are some that's fixes. That's the best point, Doug, though, is you're already not playing real drafts. You're already not, you're playing fake magic already. So like, if this is just a part of fake magic, okay, it's a part of fake magic. I just don't really care enough to get bent out of shape about it. I mean, there's, there's way bigger problems as far as collusion and, you know, people getting benefits of, of not even playing their tournaments. I promise you. There are Moto PTQ winners who are not who they say they are. Someone else won the PTQ for them. I promise that's happened with Mox qualifications as well. People who aren't actually playing under the correct name. It, it, it is a problem, um, it, but it's an unavoidable problem. And this is the smallest, teeniest tip of that iceberg. And really, if you're thinking about stopping drafting on Moto because of this, it's kind of silly. There's other problems with league drafting on Moto. Um, but I, I really wouldn't let this be determinative. And I kind of hate that we gave it as much fun as we did. Cause we're just like, it's just fear mongering. Like this guy just created some fear for no reason. But honestly, I, I think the reaction has been pretty similar from everyone. I don't, I haven't seen anyone take the stance. Like I'm not drafting on moto anymore. This is ridiculous. Maybe some people in that Reddit thread, cause they don't have the brightest collections of minds over in that Reddit discussion group. I'm probably gonna get flamed by them now. I can't wait. <laughs> Well, um, I do think we've talked about this enough. You are right. And the brilliant minds at Reddit that brought us this has also brought us our next topic that we're going to talk about. Uh, For those of you who don't know, there was a post on Reddit recently that had a picture of an entire rare sheet of cards from not the next set, but the one after. Now, I just want to say right now, um, in no way on this podcast are we planning on talking about anything specific that we might have seen, trying to decipher what the cards were. Um, I personally am a big fan of uh, the way that Watsi wants to take control. There may be some elements about how they release spoilers that I think are a little humorous, but we can get to that later. But I do think that it's important for the company to release things under their own accord, through the streamers, through the websites, through the podcasts, uh, through the mothership. Um, so I don't want to talk about specifics, but I do think it's valuable that we talk about this subject and leaks in general. And uh, the fact they keep getting out what this means or just any other thoughts that we uh, might have. So, Rob, how about you get us started on this uh, topic? If if you have any opinions, it's fine if you don't as well. Yeah, no, I definitely have some opinions. (laughs) Um, Like, so my personal stance on leaks is like, I I don't really care if they happen or not. Like, it doesn't matter to me when I see the card, if I see the card today or if I see the card, like, whatever, when they're supposed to release it. I don't get, like, any more or less excited about what's going on for me like as someone who's invested in magic like it's actually better for me to know earlier because i can make better decisions earlier right on what decks i think are going to be good what cards i want to pick up or like what things i want to test to make testing for the pro tour a little bit better since we get a little more time (laughs) to do that kind of stuff but in terms of like how does this happen and you know what how should we react as a community, like I, I used to work at BlackBerry and we had all kinds of leaks all the time, right? And Apple had leaks and Samsung has like everyone has their their leaks. And like everyone thinks that like, oh, you know, there's all these leaks, like someone at Watsi's getting fired. And it's like almost never, ever, ever anyone inside the company that's leaking the information. It's like a very, very rare thing to happen. It's usually someone in the supply chain has too much access and not enough controls, and then they do something stupid to try and get their 15 minutes of fame, right? And given that these are test print sheets, or what it looks like anyways, I feel like it's probably someone that works at one of their printing companies, and somehow they got access to these sheets, and they decided to scoop them. 
right? And and then and then post them on the internet as as blurry cam photos. But um, and, and I don't care. Like I think it's stupid for them to do that. And Wasi should tighten the controls around their supply chain so that it doesn't happen. But I don't think that we as a community should get uh, called out for either being interested in looking at the cards, being interested in talking about the cards, <laughs> or reporting on what people have posted. Right? Like I saw. Uh, I think it was like Conley Woods just like flamed uh, Saffron Olive on Twitter for like posting a link to the picture, right? And it's like this guy is part of a news MTG news site. They have a spoiler section on their site. It's his job to talk about this kind of stuff. Like, why are you following him if you're not interested in the latest breaking MTG news? It doesn't make any sense, right? And I would be disappointed if they weren't talking about it. If everyone pretended like. Uh, it never happened because it did happen. And there are some interesting things going on there. Um, but Doug doesn't want us to speak about them. <laughs> so I'll, I'll save it for another day. I'm sure. Save it for um, KYT week, not, a, <laughs> not my week. But my personal opinion is, yeah, like this is Watsi's problem and they should tighten it up. And it's not the community's problem. I think we're free to use the information uh, that we have. It is. Some people have said that it's stealing. It is not stealing to look at this information. I feel very strongly about that anyways. Go ahead. <laughs> anyone, anyone who suggests that it's at all the responsibility of the viewer of spoiled cards to be like more diligent is that's obviously ridiculous. I don't even think that's worth talking about. But in general, leaks are bad for for Watsi for sure for for a lot of reasons, right? Like a lot of Wizards' job for the the sort of month leading up to a set release is to build hype, and the way they do that is by slow releasing spoilers, right? By giving little tidbits to each, you know, little, like we get one, you know, all the little websites get one. And that, that's a way to build hype, right? You get people excited. And when you, we saw this happen with New Phyrexia, when you release everything at once, everyone's really excited when it happens. But then when you get into that area of time where the current set is getting a little stale for people and they want some new, they want to look at some new cars, there's nothing to look at. And people do get bored. So it's definitely bad for Watsi. It's bad for their marketing. Um, I think it's kind of funny that the set is about pirates and it got plundered. That's kind of a little bit of a, a dank meme about the situation. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely not a good thing. I like it now because I'm looking at them. I can't help myself, but it's it sucks. Um, faulting the person who took the photos is also, I think, pretty stupid. Like, yeah, the photos got taken, but... The responsibility is always going to be on on Watsi to do a better job hiding their stuff. So, really, they're the ones getting punished the most because, if anything, it's going to affect their bottom line and not anyone else's. So, it's too bad that it happened. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Leaks suck. Nobody says otherwise ever. I don't think anyone roots for this. Um, I think once it happens, there's. I, I do think that there is some benefit as us as content creators in the magic community to work to not spread these leaks. However, there's a tipping point that once you cross, it just doesn't matter anymore. And once these leaks are posted on Reddit in the most upvoted posts on the forum and uh, the cat's out of the back. Now, if these leaks were in the depths of 4chan, and Saffron Olive was out there plundering through, you know, some kind of trade site for card printers who are bouncing um, test images back and forth. And he's like, look what I found on the deepest edges of this forum. And he brings it to everyone's attention. 
Okay, I, I think like as as being you know kind of a friend of the game, I think that's how a lot of those content creators think of themselves. Maybe you should just pass. Like, just I, I, you know, I think if someone I can't speak for KYT, but I'm going to anyway. Say someone showed up uh, at KYT's doorstep and said, "Yo, I have the entire next set that's about to come out. I'll give it to you as an exclusive. You can put it up on manadeprived.com." I think he would say no in a heartbeat. I don't think there's one second where he would, he would even contemplate taking those spoilers. And that's exactly right. He shouldn't. But this is a completely different situation. And to see people attacked for talking about the most upvoted post on Reddit is just crazy. Like, you can't ask them to feign ignorance. And I think kind of the people doing the attacking were people very closely aligned with Wizards, um, people who have freelanced for Wizards before, people who maybe are posturing to work for wizards. That's, you know, there's a lot of that that goes on in this community. And it's, I'll say that it even crosses my mind sometimes when I want to be critical of wizards. And I think, well, wait, do I really want to like burn bridges with this company that makes my favorite product in the world by trashing them for 45 minutes? Apparently the answer is yes, as I do it every week. I I can't help myself. Um, But it it does cross my mind. And I, I have a feeling that's a lot of what's going on here too. But you know, shaming these content creators, that's pretty crazy. There's, there's a point where I would be on board with questioning what they were doing, and it's in situations like I described, but this is not that. This was a very visible post on Reddit. Literal everyone was talking about it, and the cat was out of the bag. It sucks, but that's just where we were. So, yeah, I, I hope leaks stop. I, I think Wizards need some tighter quality controls, but honestly... It's kind of just like, if you're going to print cards, this is one of the big costs of doing business. Again, another edge that digital TCGs have over Magic. You know, the Hearthstone cards, I I don't think there's ever been a Hearthstone leak before, right? I don't think things really get out ahead of time. And uh, a lot of these problems come from printing. And, you know, back in the day, it came from giving published materials to to content creators. And, you know, there's just not a good answer. There's not a good answer. And you need to be cognizant of all sides. And these content creators have to talk about this stuff. They have no choice, really. They would look silly if they didn't. And and we would look silly if we didn't mention this story. You know, we we kind of thrive on controversy and and what's the hot topic of magic. Well, this is a hot topic. And if we show up this week and don't mention it, it's being disingenuous. Uh, So yeah, ease off defenders of Watsi. I think you're being unfair here. Okay, I do have one more point before we move on, Doug. So there was a car. I, so the only interesting thing about this, I really, uh, maybe not the only, there's a few interesting things about the leak, but the most interesting thing is there is a card with very bad templating. And I'm very curious to know for early enough in the process that they changed the wording so that it doesn't have the worst templating ever. So I'll be watching for this. It won't. So maybe it this leak was a blessing. It won't. There's no way. Yeah, but it's it was, I, I just, it, that, I mean, who, who knows how early this test sheet is though, right? I doubt it. We'll see, but I doubt it. I just want to watch. I want to see if we were, if this leak was a blessing instead of a disaster. If we saved this card from being just a complete mess, then I feel like we did our job <laughs> as a community, you know? <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. The Reddit community bringing scandals and solving problems all at the same time. Uh, but this is actually a good segue talking about not leaks, but spoilers. Um, we, we had the opportunity this weekend at Grand Prix Vegas to watch an epic duel between the defenders of the Gatewatch and Nico Bolas himself. Uh, the, the duel featured entirely uh, new 
out of Devastation cards, including the new art for the Basic Lens, and it was all capped off with an epic reveal where ropes were pulled and people fell over as a sand sculpture just came crashing to the ground to reveal the Scorpion God himself. Um, it, it was, you know, it was a bit cheesy. I'm not going to lie. We we have some opinions on that, but it it was uh, it was a fun event that they put on that some people really liked. And for those of us who don't necessarily care so much about that, we got to see a bunch of new spoilers, and and that was pretty exciting. So uh, we're gonna start off with uh, Brian. Is there a card specifically that you're thinking about that you saw that you want to bring to the attention? And uh, I can read it off if you don't have it in front of you, but. Yeah, why don't, why don't you read it for the people out there, Doug? Let them know. The Hour of Revelation, that's the card that we're all talking about. So Hour of Revelation is a six mana. It's white, 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 three. And it says Hour of Revelation costs three less to cast if there are ten or more non-land permanents on the battlefield. And it says destroy all non-land permanents. So this is a interesting card. Brian, what are your first, uh, first takes on this? It's an interesting card for sure. And it, it's playable uh, without the clause on it to make it cheaper. Um, it still has a very powerful effect, a very interesting effect. Think about how it, uh, kind of how standard has changed. Think about board states you've seen loaded with marvels and planeswalkers and creatures and glue tokens, and just every type of permanent you could possibly fathom, and cast outs just all over the board. Um, this is a, a very high-impact Wrath for only one more mana than kind of the current Wrath we're playing, um, and possibly less mana. I, I don't know how often that's actually going to come into play, um, but against you know dedicated token decks, we were talking about the black-white tokens deck a little bit earlier, you would always play this for three against that deck at the times you want it, and it would be hugely impactful against that deck as well uh it's a deck that really diversifies its permanence so uh this is an exciting control card we haven't had this kind of clean answer for a while now this card has existed in a very close form previously i don't remember the name of the card if anyone remembers it It was in the core sets planar cleansing planar cleansing and it was it was three colors three white destroy all non-land permanents right that this, was it this card is just strictly, strictly better, better. Yep. That's what I thought. Yep. yeah and that card was played in very small numbers um but as my magic moves further down this rabbit hole and becomes more about planeswalkers and kind of diverse permanents, this card gets even better. Uh, board states look a lot more cluttered than they did back when Planner Cleansing was around when, and it was a fine card. So I expect this to see a lot of play, uh, be a really clutch answer for control, and maybe push control a little bit more towards the white direction where it's been, you know, mostly red recently. Um, people try and make black work a lot and white has kind of been the odd man out in the control equation where it's usually one of those four color combinations we may see a push back to white with this card because this is a really clean answer to a lot of problems okay vince vince what do you think about the hour of revelation about that card specifically yeah. that card's unreal like it's i think brian hit the nail on the head that card is, is redefining what white will do in standard for two years is that is that how long sets are in standard now two years Ish. Like years. Ish, I mean, yeah. this one be like six months without them changing how long <laughs> cards are in standard. I don't know if we've made it six months without them repealing the 18 and the 24. No, I'm just teasing. Right. So, for whatever amount of time they decide it will be in standard, that card will be very relevant and define archetypes for sure. The card is sweet. There is other cards that were mentioned or that, that came up in that hugely amazing epic battle that happened on <laughs> that I want to draw attention to that might not have gotten a lot of attention. And there was a cycle of common lands that, that cycle 
sorry, cycle being that there was one in each color, and they had cycling on them for their color. So it was like a, a land that tapped a red and had cycling one red. And I think it's interesting that we have those now because that means in standard, we have 10 lands that cycle, like a full, like two cycles, two sets of lands that cycle. That could have an impact on some weird fringe decks that allows them to just like go real hard on the cycling theme and not really get stuck with being like punished with having to play really awkward bad cycling cards. Um, so it's obviously not as exciting as a three mana planar cleansing, but still could be very relevant in standard and we'll see some play in limited. So I'm excited about the random weird common cards and Inferno yeah. Jet deal six with cycling is what I want to be doing in, in limited. So. Opponents, but uh, it still does deal six to the opponent. It doesn't hit creatures, but uh, when I deal six, I deal to opponents, not creatures. (laughs) Uh, Just interestingly enough, those lands you're discussing, we're going to talk about the red one, uh, Desert of the Fervent. They're deserts. I don't know how relevant that will be, but that could be relevant. The fact that they have the the word desert on them, and we've already seen a bunch of cards that trigger off deserts. So that's cool as well. They cycle, uh, they do come into play tapped. So it's not all upside um, for a single color lands, but I think they're pretty interesting. So, um, Rob, is there anything jumping out at you that you'd like to talk about or uh, thoughts on anything that was mentioned so far? So I think that the Scorpion God is pretty good, right? It seems, <laughs> it seems annoying. So I, I read a Mero's article today uh, when I was doing my research for our podcast, you know, um, that all three of the gods, these unknown gods or whatever, they're going to be in Grixis colors. So we're going to get a black, red one, a blue, black one, and a blue, red one, I guess. And that all of them have that last um, paragraph of text. So when the god dies, return it to its owner's hand at the beginning of the next end step. And they all have a static ability and some activated ability. So I, I don't know, like, they seem good. Like, it's a... A five minute six five with a relevant ability. So do you want to just read off all the text? Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. So it's it's three black red for a six five, and it's a legend. Obviously, when a creature with a negative one negative one counter on it dies, you draw a card. So it could be yours or your opponent's, and then you can pay one black red to put a minus one minus one counter on another target creature, and then when it dies, you bring it back to your hand at the beginning of the next end step. So it just like in limited, this card is like the nightmare of all nightmares, right? It's, I, I don't know if it's better than, uh, uh, what was it? The Archfiend of Ifnir or whatever, or like Angel of Sanctions, but God, is it ever close, right? Like, how are you ever being, <laughs> you need to exile it or you're definitely going to lose. It, it annihilates your opponent's entire board, uh, makes them unable to attack or block into anything, uh, never dies and draws you a bunch of cards. Like, yeah, I don't know. that This card seems sweet. And if the other ones are uh, in this power level, um, I don't know. I, I think there could be some very strong components to this Grixis control deck that's probably featuring Bolas um, in the new standard. So I'm kind of excited about that. Yeah, I think this card is absolutely insane um, under one very specific circumstance. And that circumstance is that the year is 2002 and we play magic like we used to back then where creatures aren't loaded with comes into play abilities and have to make an immediate impact. I see this card doing absolutely nothing. I don't, I don't think it's actually playable at all. Um, it, it's too expensive for what's a non-evasive body that kind of just rots on a lot of different boards. Um, you know, six mana to give a creature minus two, minus two is not going to get the job done in a, a lot of constructed formats. Uh, three mana for minus one, minus one probably isn't going to help all that much. 
I can think of a lot of spots where this card is just irrelevant. There's cards like um, Return on, on the back half of Never to Return that, that deal with this efficiently. There's still Exile effects, things like Cast Out, uh, Declaration in Stone, plenty of ways to deal with this. It, it's not completely unkillable. I can see this maybe having a home in some sideboards. I don't think any deck is built around this card, and I don't think it's something that we see um, ravaging top tables in, in the near future. But uh, it's an interesting design format, and I, I definitely am interested to see what the other ones do. They just have to be a little cheaper for this kind of like incremental value thing to work. Um, otherwise, these cards aren't going to see play, I think. I think you're forgetting about your EDH friends, Brian. And how sweet this card we is! That. How sweet this card is uh, with Black Sun Zenith. <laughs> that I guess that's true, Rob. I, I have no, I have no way to fight that statement. I will concede this point to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, I agree. I don't think it's breaking standard in any way, but I think the design's really cool, and it's definitely yes. breaking limited. <laughs> yeah, problematic card for sure. I do want to mention one more card uh, before we move on to our final topic, and it actually happens to be a card that can deal with the Scorpion God himself. Uh, This card is really cool. It's an Aftermath card, and it's called Grind to Dust. Uh, For those of you who haven't seen this card, on the grind half, it's a black and one, and it's put a minus one, minus one counter on each of up to two target creatures. Um, So you could even cast it uh, on no creatures if you really wanted to just get in your graveyard to set up the back half for a later portion of the game, which the back half says for dust, it says aftermath and castments in graveyard. It's a white and three, and it says exile any number of target creatures that have a minus one, minus one counter on them. Uh, so for six mana and one fell swoop, it can just exile two creatures. If there's minus one, minus one counters littering the board at all, especially in a game of limited, which we're likely to see. Um, this dust half could potentially do more damage. And the fact that on, you know, two mana, if your opponent has, has got a nice one drop, two drop out, you can just put some minus ones out. Uh, do we have any opinions about this card? Does anyone uh, like or dislike the grind to dust? I don't think it's great in standard. I'm not sure that it has a home. But, like, that'll depend on how easy it is to give all of your opponent's creatures, minus one, minus one. Like, right now, there's no real incentive. Like, the negative, negative, negative one, negative one counter deck is not a deck, and I feel like this would be a very good foil to that deck if it were something, right? So, like, <laughs> one in a black, kill something, and then three in a white, plague wind your opponent. Um, but I don't see that yet. So maybe it's kind of more of a setup for something coming close to when this block is rotating out, which will be uh, next fall. So we already know we're going to Ixalan and then we're going back to Dominaria. So maybe we're hitting New Phyrexia in the, as the summer set for 2018, in which case like you'll have Wither or Infect or something like that, and then a minus one, minus one counter theme there as well. So you can kind of get all that garbage out uh, in one standard environment, um, in which case this card uh, might end up being uh, reasonable there. But, I mean, it's definitely good and limited, obviously. I'll be very happy uh, with this card, but I don't think it's... I don't think it's breaking anything in standard. Hour of Revelation is. That card is... I like, I like that card. <laughs> so the, the short form of what Rob just said is that the card is unplayable in standard. It won't see any play in standard. There will not be a circumstance where this card sees plays in standard. Um, but yeah, good and limited. All right, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm excited about this card. I think it might be good. Maybe um, Proliferate's coming back. Then Doug's onto something. Still bad. 
All right. Well, we're going to move on to our final topic. Um, We're not going to spend too much time on it, but uh, I do want some quick opinions on um, on three v three magic, on team magic. You know, there's two things that we've we've had people talking about on the First Strike Nation. We had some posts and some questions about the specific uh, team format coming up for Cleveland, and maybe any advice uh, that could be given. Either you know, it could be mental game, could be specific to these sets. Uh, as well as I'd like to quickly touch on the announcement that there's going to be a Team Pro Tour coming, which is uh, pretty cool, I, I must say, because Team is my favorite format. So, uh, Vince, how about you start us off just with any thoughts about either the Team format or uh, Houston, or is it Cleveland? Sorry, I, I got Houston in my mind from something else. Cleveland, I think, uh, is the Team GP location. It is Cleveland, you are correct. Houston is a not the city it will be in. Uh, yeah, Team Limited is awesome. It's a super fun GP format. Um, I've had the pleasure of teaming with the same team at two different GPs over two years, and we did pretty well at both of them. So um, it was a lot of fun. And we learned a lot about how to practice for a team GP because it's drastically different than, than practicing for a normal limited GP. And really the best way that I can describe what we did was just, we took, we actually did a bunch of mock builds where we got 12 packs. Is it 12 packs? It's 12 packs. Um, we timed ourselves. We timed each step of the process of us literally opening the packs, sorting the cards, defining archetypes, figuring out, decks assigning decks to people figuring out sideboards and we we kind of um what what we tried to look at is places where we were taking too much time places where we could have taken more time uh, i think we did it maybe three or four times in between the first time my team uh, went to a team gp and the second time and we definitely saw an improvement in our process um and it helped a lot and that's that's really important being able to manage that time of you opening your product and figuring out decks is going to make or break a lot of correct uh team sealed builds because unlike other limited uh gps this one the the first hour of the tournament is very very important in determining your success because if you miss build the consequences are much more drastic in terms of it affects three decks rather than just one and you might end up just not being able to win any round so being able to understand how to build build your pool correctly is really important and really the only way to do that is to actually get your two partners together sit down open 12 packs and get used to that process yeah before we jump off that topic i had the opportunity at the last team gp i went to which was i think it was indianapolis or something like that uh, i played with sammy t and david ochoa and when we got to the site they both said they want to do exactly that get together and just practice building and we finished the first build we didn't care about the decks we didn't care about the colors we then had a discussion about what worked in our communication? What do we need to change? What were the voices that were too prevalent, not prevalent enough? Um, and then we refined that process. We did a second one. We refined that process again. We did day one. Uh, and then once again, refined that process coming back on day two for our last build. Uh, it, it's definitely important. And I think if anyone wants to seriously have a shot at these events, you should do that. These Mega teams, they might get away from it because or get away with it because they like the Peach Garden Oath has played together so many times. They might not have to keep doing that. They've already learned that. Um, but if you want a shot to compete, take Vince's advice. It's very valuable. Um, let's send it over to Brian. Do you have any thoughts, Team Pro Tour or uh, Cleveland specific? Yeah, I think I'm going to share what may prove to be 
non-popular opinion, I am not into this team Pro Tour at all. I think it has a really negative impact on the success chances of um, people like me, people like Rob, people like you, Doug, who are not Pro Tour regulars. Um, you know, the, the guy who's showing up for his first Pro Tour, I, you know, people got bent out of shape. I think it was Oliver, too. He said that it was uh, a format which is beneficial towards entrenched players. And people kind of ragged on him for that. And I, I don't think the problem is how beneficial it is towards entrenched players, because life is beneficial towards entrenched players. The more practice you have, that's beneficial. The longer time you've been doing anything, the better you'll be at it. That's how things work. The problem is just how discriminatory, discriminatory it is against non-entrenched players. That's the difference, is that you're almost not even competing on the same playing field. It, it may be impossible for some people to get teams. So I'm concerned about the validity of a team Pro Tour format. I'm especially thinking about Pro Tour qualifiers in, say, I don't know, Russia. You qualify for the Pro Tour from Russia. I mean, maybe there's only one person from Russia qualifying for this Pro Tour. Where are they supposed to go for their teammates? What if they don't speak any language besides Russian? I mean, like, this sounds like a very small thing, but it's totally possible. And you shouldn't, if you qualify for a Pro Tour, you shouldn't be locked out of it. And I don't think it's only going to be team events feeding this Pro Tour. Maybe it will be. And if that's the case, I take all of this back. If you could only qualify for this Pro Tour via being silver, gold, platinum, a team GP, or a team PTQ, then I take back this criticism. It's not fair. Um, but if people are going to be playing the standard PPTQ format or standard GPs and qualifying for this Pro Tour, I'm a little concerned about the hoops they're going to have to jump through to compete. Um, and so I think that hopefully that provides a little different perspective on Oliver's argument. I, I don't think it's bad because of how good it is for entrenched players. It's bad because of how bad it is for non-entrenched players. You're, you're just locked out of a lot of options. It's fine that some people have an edge, but I don't know. It, it needs to be a little slimmer for me to be comfortable with it. All right. And as someone like myself has played in team PTQs before, they are insanely fun. I hope they bring that back. But that is something I haven't thought about until you mentioned it. So, I mean, a little of my hype may have died, but uh, I'm still really hyped. That's my job. I'm just killing everyone's hype, making everyone's hype worse wherever I can. No, no, no. You bring reality, and we we appreciate that. Um, Now, someone who always seems to be on a planet all on their own. No, I'm just kidding. Rob Lombardi, do you have any thoughts uh, about either Cleveland specifically or uh, the Team Pro Tour both? Yeah, uh, just... Quickly on the team pro tour, I'm kind of split between uh, everyone. I'm not super excited about it, and I understand Brian's gripes with the complications uh, that may come. But we don't know how they're queuing people, so I'm going to just reserve judgment over whether or not I hate it or love it uh, until they tell us how how we can qualify for it. Maybe it is fantastic and the best thing ever, or maybe it's the literal worst thing that they've done to the pt so we'll see for cleveland um yeah i'm super pumped um i'm excited about my team we're going to be down there on friday so if anyone's down in cleveland and they're playing then come hit me up uh we're friendly you know like i'm probably don't know you by face but you know just stick yell something at me obscenity or not and and let me know you're there in terms of like building uh, a team sealed pool i think everyone had really good points like generic points uh, just like Quickly on this format, uh, it looks like the team seal format is going to be very close to the draft format, 
but with a little bit of the inconsistencies um, that come with the a sealed format in a draft format that's hyper synergistic. So I think that um, the synergies uh, between the color pairs are very important, and they were very important uh, in draft, and it made building sealed kind of annoying sometimes where you like have a whole bunch of white black cards, but you don't have the zombies deck. <laughs> so you have like half white and bomb, a half black minus one, minus one counter theme deck going on. And there you're like, your deck can be fine, uh, but it's just not at its peak efficiency uh, when you're, when your colors are split like that. So in this format, it, it's going to be like that too, right? You hope to open, I think just color pairs with, with this, the synergies of the color pairs are really ramped up. And I don't think you really care too much about what they are, so long as they're not green, blue, garbage, or white, blue, and bomb. I think the rest of the colors are are mostly fine. If I could just like script what decks we come out with at the end of the event, I would hope that we have uh, a good to very good white, black zombies deck with like some of the key cards, like a lord um, or Inoketra's name or Binding Mummies stuff like that. Some Grixis colored. Uh, discard deck where we get to put all of the random spells uh, and cycling cards and then like any other exert deck and I don't really care what the color combination is like white green white red green red something in that space that that would be kind of my dream pool if that's how it worked out I think that's where you would if you come up with that pool you would have a, a good chance of having a very high level pool a high power level pool that can compete with the rest of the format um, but obviously we don't get to pick <laughs> but that that's where my my biases would lie when I open up the pool. I just want to say one completely unrelated thing to what you just talked about for the last three minutes because I Thanks. want to go back to the Team Pro Tour. I know I'm just completely derailing this conversation, but um, to Brian's point about the Team Pro Tour being bad for players who are kind of who don't like that might be the only PT they qualify for and they're just screwed because it's a team PT and they don't have enough of a network that's a very fair point I do think an easy way for them to fix that is just say you have the option to sort of suspend your invite until the next pro tour Um, also I want to comment on the fact that a lot of this has to do with not the people playing in the pro tour but the people watching I think Wizards is becoming a lot more receptive to the idea that they're selling a sport as, as entertainment and they need to make sure that they're doing everything they can to maximize the viewer experience. And I think going into the, this whole team, uh, pushing this whole team idea is one way that they think anyway is going to work really well for them in terms of making magic more entertaining to watch. So I applaud them for trying this and I'm totally okay with them doing it at the expense of, of pro players. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that for those of you, aka all of my co-hosts who play on the Pro Tour, but I'm a viewer. I want to see entertaining Pro Tours, and if that means it's going to be a little bit harder for uh, the people who are struggling to get there to get there, uh, you're going to do it anyway. Sorry. So make it more entertaining for me to watch. I'm I'm always down with that. No, I definitely can respect that opinion uh, as someone who has struggled at every Pro Tour I've been to. I do realize that the viewer experience is not about me being on camera. It's about those big storylines, the you know the the Matt Severa Cohen team going up against the the Reed Duke Owen team. Like it's just it's that's what people want to see. So you know, there's there's two sides to every story. Well, that's going to wrap our episode. I just want to give a huge shout out to the uh, other co-hosts for making this uh, smooth. I had fun. Big shout out to KYT, this, and many other awesome ventures 
that are put out through face-to-face and mounted prive wouldn't have uh, happened if it wasn't for KYT. Of course, we mentioned at the top of the show, our nation is strong, the First Strike Nation. Um, w- without your support and the Patreon, uh, these things wouldn't be able to happen. And for those of you who might be interested in joining the First Strike Nation, uh, you can look for our Patreon and you can uh, follow that. You can support and we'd be happy to have you. I love seeing uh, new members joining the First Strike Nation. Even though I haven't been playing as much, I definitely still read every single post there and love being involved. For those of you who stayed and watched the live show, thank you very much. Uh, and for everyone that's here, this has been Doug Potter signing off. Until next week, episode 32, hopefully with a better title. Thank you.